Did you see the um, Top Gun Maverick? I have not seen it, no. No. Uh, but Either have I, but... It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's supposed to be the biggest uh, opening weekend for Tom Cruise. That's pretty crazy, right? It is the biggest one. I mean, it's the it, given how many films he's been in, but in its second, it actually has a, a distinction that I thought was really interesting because it collected $90 million in its second weekend. And that is only a decline of 29% from its premiere, which is the lowest percentage in history for a movie that was $100 million or more. Yeah. So in other words, this is the first time that a movie opened to more than $100 million that dropped off as little as this one did. Right, right, right. What, what do you, why do you, uh, do you think that is? Or were there any theories that they, that they talked about that? Well, I, I think what's, what's interesting about this, this movie, there's a bunch of different theories. Um, but what's interesting to me is that this is a movie where I've heard people wanting to go to see it in groups that I typically don't see. I'm in, um, I'm in Jacksonville right now, and I'm staying with uh, my sister-in-law and her husband. And he is a, um, you know, a fireman. He's a, a you know, rescue fireman or whatever. There's, there's, a, there's a better name for this that I'm not remembering right now. But um, you know, he's, a, yeah, he's a paramedic, fireman, the whole nine yards. They go through all this different certification. But whatever the level is that like, is before you run a whole crew yourself, that's what he is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just talking to me yesterday about a whole, all of his uh, firehouse buddies wanting to get together to go see this movie and like making an outing out of it and going all together. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting because you don't hear of that kind of dynamic um, for, at least I don't, for other films, unless they're like kids' movies and like, right, you right. know, a group of moms or something is taking well. kids yeah. to go see. Yeah. Um, and I read, a, I read a Politico piece that I thought was interesting, too, about the, the, the argument went basically that it was something about there's, a, there's obviously the nostalgia factor, but there's something about the mood in the country and this kind of malaise, right, um, that, that we're in, this sort of like, oh, inflation's high and gas is high and, you know, everybody's still fighting and we've got elections coming up and everybody's kind of like in a, in a dull mood. And so this idea of something that can be unifying, even if it isn't good, right? Even if it's not like qualitatively good, which I haven't seen the movie, but I understand it actually is pretty good. Yeah, it's got, it's but even if reviews, it isn't, yeah. mm-hmm. the idea that, right, but even if it isn't, the idea that maybe this is something that people can sort of unify around in the, in the most kind of vanilla version of patriotism that might exist, right? Something we can all kind of vaguely agree with, Right. That was the argument that this political piece was sort of making. That's I thought that was interesting. That's an interesting point, right? I mean, in a, I think we're living in a really, obviously, very interesting time politically, but also the fact that war is a real possibility. With everything that's been going on in Ukraine, uh, there's also this, this fear that I think a lot of people have that that could lead into the U.S. getting into an act of war. And I wonder if this kind of film sort of lets us Let's the collective us sort of experience 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 that aspect a little more vicariously, uh, in a way. Maybe that's contributing to it. Also, think that is a very unique situation that you have the nostalgia factor. And people have tried to do nostalgia, but with remakes, and remakes are always terrible. The fact that you still have Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is a big star, man. I know people like will give him a lot of hell about all the Scientology stuff and, and other things, but that dude just makes good movies all the time. And he still got it right. Uh, yeah. And then there's also a film that. Right now, it doesn't have much competition. I think the next one that's going to be coming up is But I think be Tom Cruise, Park. doesn't Tom Cruise also, but doesn't Tom Cruise also kind of harken you back to a time 
that you felt more optimistic about things? Isn't isn't it nostalgia plus? Yeah, I guess you could say about definitely about the first Top Gun movie. Think about that time. Um, I guess so. Look, I think Tom Cruise movies tend to be, you know, I, I think of I probably think of it much think of him much more because of the Mission Impossible series, and those are always like just fun movies to watch. They're just they're just fun movies to watch, and um, it, it is interesting how the, the 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 part that I don't fully follow is is the whole group outing, like why people are wanting to go and especially like uh, like adults like like group of adults that want to go watch this movie together. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what is it about this movie specifically that will that will cause that. I have seen a lot, frankly, on TikTok, of a lot of like guys complaining about their wives or girlfriends really enjoying this movie <laughs> because of all the oh really oh yeah yeah because it, it, like remember I mean you remember the first Top Gun movie right like a lot of like of course I watched it last and, night and, just to get pre- uh, oh, just, just to get prepared yeah I mean like, oh yeah it had the obligatory that. shirtless yeah, scenes they, everywhere and this one has it too right so there was a, a hilarious uh, TikTok I was watching of a guy taking his girlfriend uh, and like he like watching the screen as they're doing like this volleyball scene in the beach and then like puts the camera at her and she's just like, what? <laughs> it has like the, a really funny expression, right? So I don't know if it has, it was one of those movies that kind of has a little bit for, for everybody. Maybe there's that as well, you know, that makes it more appealing. You know, the interesting thing too about re-watching the movie, which I did last night, Top Gun, the first one, I think that came out in 86 maybe, 85, mm-hmm. 86, something like that. 80 something for sure. Is, yeah. is how, th- how things look in retrospect, right? I mean, the movie was directed by Tony Scott, top flight action director back at the time. Actually, his brother is Ridley Scott, who does more the, even in the 80s, did the more upper brow stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Tony Scott was like action crazy masculine adrenaline. And then Ridley Scott was like the more intellectual, mm-hmm. you know, erudite fair. But, um, but with, um, with this movie, what struck me was how like cringy it was. It was really, really cringy in certain parts. Oh, I don't remember it at all. Yeah. What was cringy about it? You don't remember it at all? Uh, I mean, barely. Well, I mean, I think think about it really hard. I could remember some parts, but it's been a long time. Just a lot of, it's just a lot of the writing, I think, in particular struck me. There's a couple of scenes that are just so over the top kind of, um, unless people were really that way back then, which maybe that's true. But, you know, there was this, this one particular scene where Val Kilmer approaches Tom Cruise in the very first, uh, when they have their first meeting and they're kind of going back, peacocking a little bit, you know, they're both kind of peacocking a little bit. And there's this one moment where Val Kilmer kind of like, kind of like snaps his teeth at him, like in a show of ferocity, but it looks so stupid when he does that. (laughs) And I, 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 I couldn't, well, I couldn't but help but imagine. Era, dude, this is the era of Rocky or Drago. Come on, man! Like that's what that's what it was. That was film, you know. That's stuff that used to get us excited, right? Is the I guess you know. Think about that. Think about that. Was it Rocky Four? The one with Drago, where at the end of it, they all start chanting oh, Rocky, yeah. where he unites oh, both, so good. both countries, right, with one boxing match. Just, just the stakes couldn't yeah. have been higher. I mean, just imagine that. But just remember that. I but guess. see, even as we're t- but I, I think even as we're talking about this, right, we're sort of smiling and everything. And yes, it is nostalgia. But my point about nostalgia plus is that it is nostalgia related to a time where either, and it can't be familial because everybody's family dynamic is different, but where culturally it feels to me like something like a was. Time kind of thing. 
Yeah, like a uh, yeah, something like that. I something like that. that. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, maybe that's that's the part that is appealing for people. Um, it is interesting. I definitely want to see it. Um, but like I said, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of Tom Cruise. I think his movies are 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 good. You know, I don't recall the last bad movie that uh, that he was in. I'm sure there's been some. Well, he did some of the. Yeah, there has been some. I forget what the big flops were. There were a couple. But yeah, for the most part, I mean, that guy's super selective about what he does. And, you know, he definitely deserves his, um, his credit for, if, any, if for nothing else, the longevity of his career. I mean, yeah. he has been in, you know, blockbuster after blockbuster. And when you get a big output deal like he has with Paramount, where you're just basically making movies for the next 25 years, um, that says something. And by the way, on this one, another interesting business point, which I don't think we've talked about, is he specifically said that this movie had to be theatrically released, right? Because this movie was in the can like two and a half years ago. It oh, was supposed to come out summer of 2020. Yeah, yeah, I do remember it being delayed. Uh, well, that didn't that pay off, right? He's looking pretty pretty smart right now off having done that. Looking and, very um, smart right now. You know, you know what's interesting? And even smarter uh-huh. when you can... Uh-huh, mm-hmm. even smarter than what? No, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, it's Well, okay. I was going to say even smarter than if, if you consider the dynamic that I just described, which if it is true that people are going in groups to watch this, then that's not a dynamic that really could have been done in a in a home theater uh, way. Right, right, right. To the same degree. Exactly. Yeah. No. That's that is really interesting. Um, you know what? I, what I was thinking with, with Tom Cruise and the Mission Impossible series. Because I was thinking that too. In my mind, that's the one that I most associate with him at this point. For everything that is right, for everything that is wrong with uh, Fast and the Furious, you heard me ranting about this before. I think is the opposite <laughs> with Mission Impossible. Even though they both play in this realm of action and fantasy, frankly, because it's so ridiculous some of the action that they have. But even within that, I think in the Mission Impossible series, they've done a good job of, of finding ways to still, in spite of tons of fiction, making it feel like maybe there is a way that this could be believable. And part of it is actually him, right? Like the fact that Tom Cruise himself does most of his own or all of his own stunts. I think that plays a big part of that people inherently know that is really him doing that. Even if there's a green screen, even if there's other stuff going on, like, you know, there's part of it where it's actually him doing a lot of these things. And that is a big point of distinction, in my mind, between the Mission Impossible and Fast and the Furious, which is Fast and the Furious has become terrible. Yeah, I think that that kind of uh, gives him a lot of credit for authenticity when he's doing all that stuff. Same thing that happened with Jackie Chan when he was, oh, yeah. you know, back in the day, would do all his well, same yeah. stunts. But no, I agree with that. So I'll be adding to the coffers, Jesus, of uh, right. Top Gun's take because I'm I'm going to be going soon, I guess, and we can compare notes on that later. Nice, um, great. So we've got um, we've got a little bit of a hodgepodge show today, right? So we're both remote again. I'm in Florida. You're in LA. Um, and so we, we, uh, took us, there's a bunch of interesting things that happened. We didn't have a show last week. And so some of this stuff is left over from last week, but I think it's worthy to, to touch on a lot of it. Um, so we'll just go through it. I mean, we can, you know, just kind of play it by ear here. One thing that caught my attention, given all of the gun violence, uh, in particular, these mass shootings that have happened since we talked about Uvalde, there's been Tulsa, there's been, uh, yeah. something in Philadelphia, yeah. um, I think I saw the stat there's been like yeah. maybe five, the whole week. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, the customary kind of big urban violence that happens in big cities like Chicago. But anyway, uh, President Biden uh, did a kind of a State of the Union on on guns. Did you catch that? The, the, the Biden speech? Yeah. 
I did. I uh, you saw it? Uh, okay. I did not see it. I read about it um, when he when he talked about it, right? Um, and this was last week when he when he came out and, and gave a speech where he talked about what is some of the the gun policy that he's pushing for. Um, so yeah, did, did, I mean, I, I was I'm curious. What was have, your reaction to us to to his comments? What he's pushing for? Kind of the positioning and all of that. Well, you know, so we can break down some of the, the, the quick things that he's proposing, right? So there's a little bit of, um, of a rundown of what those are. So number one, it's ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Now, here the interesting thing, and you can see memes about this, or if you go to YouTube and, you know, just go to your, you know, friendly neighborhood conservative outlet, you'll find a lot of videos of people, you know, man on the street kind of thing. Like, what is an assault weapon? And like getting the definitions for it. Mm -hmm. And even among politicians, there's no clear answer on what that actually means. The idea of a high capacity magazine is something that's very specific, right? So there you've got, I think it's 30 rounds is what constitutes 30 rounds or or higher, Mm -hmm. I guess constitutes a high-capacity magazine. And so he's asking that there be a ban on assault weapons, TBD definition, and high-capacity magazines, which has a pretty pretty concrete definition. So that's one thing. The, the, the second thing is if, if Congress can't ban it or won't ban it because they can't agree to do anything, then a raise in the minimum age from 18 to 21. Right. Which... You know, which the counterpoint to that would be it would place this constitutional right, the Second Amendment, outside of the bounds of all other constitutional rights, which for an adult began at 18. But nevertheless, that's the that's the thought. Um, Strengthening background checks, uh, safe storage laws and red flag laws, um, uh, I guess, strengthening them or, or, or enacting them if they don't exist. And then um, two other things, repealing immunity that protects gun manufacturers from liability. Uh, the example that he gave was, you know, kind of the tobacco industry. Like mm-hmm. the tobacco industry changed because they started getting sued, right? All these like class action lawsuits and all these different things. Um, and then the very last thing, which in, I think, Republicans' uh, list probably would be the first thing, uh, would be addressing the mental health crisis, right? And he calls for more mental health services, more school nurses, more counselors, that kind of thing. So that was basically his plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, I mean, it sounds very um, uncontroversial, I think, in some respects, right? I think you have some legitimate questions about definitions because what is an assault weapon? It can't be the fact that it's semi-automatic because that's every gun, right? Fully automatic is already illegal. So what is an assault weapon? Is it look like because somebody painted it black and it looks scarier? Like, what is it exactly that does that? I think high-capacity magazines is one. I think the other one that might be interesting, which he doesn't mention, is um, uh, high-capacity ammo, right? There, High-velocity ammo. There's ammunition that just, like, does a heck of a lot more damage than other ammunition, um, yeah. but he didn't, he didn't mention that, right? So, I don't know. Let, let's break these down. On that one, with the banning assault weapons, I have to know what we're talking about first. Um, and my starting point is that I don't think this... This is going to address the margins, which I'm all for addressing. I think we should take some gains at the margins, even if it's like 1%. Let's let, so I put this all in that category because I don't think this even begins to approach um, solving the issue of people taking guns into crowded places and killing people. I don't think it has anything to do with it, but let's just take it for what it is. I think on that mm-hmm. one, I just want some definitions. And on the high-capacity one, and I'd be interested in your thought, you know, 
I think it is reasonable to have a higher bar for that kind of thing. Now, I don't know what that is, but right now you can't have, say, a bazooka or a, you know, surface-to-air missile. Like, that's, you can't legally own it. That was my argument the other day, right, which is if the, if the argument is that we should be able to bear arms so you can protect ourselves potentially against our own government, then why have any restrictions on any kind of weapon? And if you really are going to use weapons to protect yourself against the government, then you need a lot bigger weapons to be able to, be able to do that. Right. But obviously the rationale is if you do that, then, you know, the likely outcome is a lot more people getting hurt. The, the, the whole definition on, on assault weapons, I, I don't – I guess the part that I, that I find slightly interesting about that comment is that is this a, kind of, it's a scenario where this becomes the excuse to kick the can to not talk about this or, or not do anything with it? Because you can literally go down the list of say, okay, fine, AK-47, AR-15. Let's go down every single make and model that falls under that category. And when we get too far enough where the line doesn't feel like it's no longer an assault weapon, then we'll stop there. It's kind of like the definition of porn. You know it when you see it, right? It, it, could be, it could be one of those. And when I hear, especially from the conservative side, people being very uh, adamant of wanting to have clear definition before passing any, any laws, that's not the approach we, took, we take with critical race theory, with banning critical race theory from classrooms. There was never about definition. If it sounds like, smell like it, ban it, whatever it may be. So, so why specifically in this one? Look, when I look at the collection of things that he is proposing, to your point, does it solve the entire gun culture problem? No. But does it, does it chip away at the issue and, and start to uh, potentially address some problems and potentially save people along, along the way? I think it can. Now, my, when I looked at the speech, I think my reaction was probably, well, I would say overall, more cringe than courage. And, and cringe for the, for the sake that the part that I find very frustrating is that it's one thing for, for us as citizens of this country to feel like frustrated and to feel that no change is going to happen, right? That there's no laws that can be passed. But when your own president puts, it, puts out a proposal for a policy and then immediately re, like pulls it back and says, well, if we can't do that, then I just raise the age group, then why are you even bringing that, that up, right? Why not make it part like, look, this is what we should be doing. Ban assault weapons. Raise yeah. the age of uh, to to. And by the way, and out of all of them, I think that's probably the one that that I don't that I think does the least to solve this problem. To be honest, the raising the age from eighteen. To raising 21. the age. Yeah, I, I, I don't. And there's and there's and there's good precedent on that one too because California just rejected that. Well, they passed the law, but it got rejected in court be- as unconstitutional for the reason I cited, which is you can't d- arbitrarily define someone's constitutional right beginning at twenty one when every other constitutional right begins at 18. Yeah, In other words, yeah, their yeah. thought, the, the court's thought was like, you have to change the constitution. For, for That's sure. what they said. Now, you know what? I, I agree with that. And I, it actually, not only for that reason, but I think practically it will make the least amount of impact because I just think that the maturity level that an 18-year-old has versus a 21-year-old has, yes, is a little bit better, but it's still not. We're still talking about someone that is a very, very young that could be potentially going through a lot of, lot of other issues. A lot of other things that are happening there that... Out of all of them, I feel like, and that's frankly, I think that's probably the only one that maybe get a little bit of traction out of all of this, but I think that's actually the wrong one to, to focus on from my perspective, right? Uh, so what I didn't like, I didn't like this, this thing that if we can ban assault weapons, then let's raise the aid. Like, dude, you can't put a proposal and immediately renegotiate like negotiate yourself down. You're like, hey, I want 200 grand, but if you can't do 200 grand, I'll take 100. Wait, wait what? Oh, okay, so you mean 100. Okay, perfect. We'll do that. 
As a matter of fact, we'll give you 25. <laughs> now that I know that you're not willing right, to negotiate exactly. for 200. So that I didn't care for. I think the, the one argument that is interesting is the, um, the third point about strengthening background checks, safe storage, and then the whole idea of a red flag laws. You know, I, I actually wasn't as familiar with what red flag laws were passed in Florida because of some of these mass shootings. And they may not actually talking about those as examples of where they are taking guns away from people that are displayed, and I, I don't know if I have a good definition of it, but that basically people that have, that have displayed uh, dangerous behavior, that have threatened people with their gun, that seem like they have issues where guns, where guns can be taken away from them. And I believe it's all part of the red flag laws that have been put in place. That is not something that we have at a national level. I think it's something that varies by state. But it is an interesting point because if we get to, to the point that we discussed, if part of the root cause or part of the issue that everyone points to with like mental wellness, correct, mental wellness is part of the problem, but then you have to have the ability to then act on removing the weapon that could be very dangerous to everybody the second that any of those, of those issues start to creep up, right? They start to come up. It's like the whole idea you and I were talking about the other day about you know, we're having a, a, an argument about whether or not we should have the 11th or 12th drink, but we're not talking about the fact that they're an alcoholic. Now, going back to the root cause, the reason why they may be an alcoholic is because they have a messed up childhood, because they have issues with stress, like with jobs, with mental health. Yeah. But if you don't remove the alcohol from the equation and you're an alcoholic, like no matter how much you try to solve all the other problems, it's going to be a problem. Right. And I, and I think that's why Red flag me, laws. It's, it's interesting uh, from the ones they talked about. It is, and it's actually something that does have broadly bipartisan support. In fact, in a lot of conservative bastions, red flag laws are, are, are supported. One, one thing for those who may not know, it's a relatively new thing. I mean, we've had red flag laws in, in place for about 20 years. Um, so it's not like we've had it forever. But to your point, based on the data, it does seem to have a pretty significant in, impact to the leading cause of gun death, which is suicide, right? Something like 62% of U.S. gun deaths are suicides. And what I'm looking at right now is a study that says that um, for every 10 guns seized, there was one averted suicide, mm -hmm. right? So, in, in, and these guns are being seized of people who are on the record doing or saying, threatening people. You know, just the other day, I'll, I'll say this as a personal anecdote. We have a neighbor who we've known for 15 years but over the course of the last four or five years has had a total psychotic break. And I, I kid you not, like yeah. I see her walking around the neighborhood, talking to herself and all this other stuff. And then the other day, um, she tried to get into our house, oh, tried man. to come into the front, into the, yeah, tried to come into the front house, yelling and screaming and cursing. And like, it was, it was, it was pretty crazy. And my son was out front, uh, working on his car and he kind of, you know, uh, basically confronted um, this woman who was, you know, said she was looking for my wife. And then she started rambling a bunch of incoherent things and in different accents. And it was really strange. But, you know, we called her her husband and said, hey, listen, you know, here's the video. Like it was a whole thing. And he said, yeah, she has um, a schizophrenia. She's developed schizophrenia. And so I looked up, you know, violence and schizophrenia, and apparently there is a subset of the schizophrenic population that becomes very violent. And I was thinking to myself, okay, well, if this person's trying to walk into my house looking for my wife, screaming obscenities, like, that's not good. Right. And what happens if this person has access to, to a weapon, right? Well, so, sure, yeah. like, the red flag law is meant for situations, I think, like that. But the... 
so that, that's actually, but you're saying that's a policy that even on the conservative, circle, conservative circles, people will will support. I mean, what, what I've read about it that's part of the challenge there is that, A, it does remove guns away from people, and it, it, the bias seems to be about taking guns as early as possible away from someone that could be problematic. And for those that strongly, strongly believe in the, in the, in the Second Amendment, it means like taking their guns away if they show some displays or signs that they could create harm on either themselves or other people. I also heard that part of the, the complaint is that people have is that it's, it's almost like a guilty until proven innocent rather than the other way around, and that it lacks kind of due process, right? But the problem with the, with the due process piece is that to when that happened to the point, that, that what you just described, if there's a scenario where she did have access to a gun, it would seem reasonable for someone to take their gun away, but if I'm an, an advocate of the Second Amendment, say, no, 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 they should have due process where they could be able to go and make their, their, their day in court, make their argument. Maybe they took some medicine that day that whatever made them feel loopy. It does not describe their overall mental state. But you shouldn't be able to take their gun away in the process of that, right? And that's the complicated issue with this that I would be, frankly, pretty surprised. And, I'm, and if it does, if it is the case where it actually is supported, great. Like, that's awesome. But it, I will find it very surprising if it was at a national level people will actually support that kind of law. Well, I'll tell you the reason why, and it goes back to one of these, these differences in kind and degree. Mm -hmm. you're, talking about, or you're talking about a one-to-one -one action as opposed to a kind of you know, one-to-many action, right? The idea of saying these guns are illegal, these bullets are illegal, this or guns across the board are illegal is it's a kind of sweeping blanket kind of change that impacts a lot of people. Right now, if I take my car and I go and I, dr I try to run somebody down on the street um, and I get arrested or cited, that can have implications on my ability to ever drive a vehicle again, right? Or even if I like to show reckless endangerment, yep. if I just run through a neighborhood going 100 miles an hour, like you're not going to get a speeding ticket. You're going to get cuffed and stuffed. And one of the results of that is you're probably going to lose your license, even though I haven't killed anybody, mm -hmm. right? So I think it falls into that category more. And it's about the individual rather than saying you're not – these people or these cars are now illegal. Do you see what I'm saying? That's, I think, the, the material difference. Yeah, but that, no, I, I get that. But, but that's why there are such things as illegal cars, right? There are actually restrictions on how fast a car can actually be. Like make it literally the whole idea of being street legal. That is a, a, a real thing. And even in that example, we have that right now for cars, right? There are certain cars that could only be used in a race type of situation in very controlled environments that cannot be used in the street. I think for that same kind of reason. So that's why, to me, going back to the assault weapons or the type of magazine people can use makes sense from that perspective, right? Um, now, the, the other one here that he, that he brings up, which I fully support, is repealing that immunity that protects gun manufacturers from liability. I mean, in, in what scenario, if you are putting a product out in market that it can be, like, that creates a lot of harm, like, why shouldn't you be yourself liable in some way or another if you're being irresponsible in product design? And the same, if we use the same example of the car, if you're doing something where you design something where it actually creates a dynamic where it can be used in a way that harms more people, I think they should be liable just as much. I mean, that, that is where it yeah, creates the I, most kind I, of financial pressure. And frankly, that's what makes things actually tick. 
I tend to agree with you on that, and I think that that should apply to the pharmaceutical companies too, mm-hmm. and even with the vaccine and all that stuff, right? That we talked about before. For sure. Um, so I, I tend to agree. I tend to agree with you on that one. Um, go, j- two seconds on the point that you made earlier about the um, there are cars that are illegal. Yeah. But what I would say to that, Jesus, is there's there's also guns that are illegal. You can't have a fully automatic. You can't have a silencer. There are illegal things now that also pertain to the guns. For sure, yeah. And I think the so I guess what I'm saying is it's a combination. Yeah, well, and what what we're saying is that I guess part of my argument on assault weapons and still some of the things that are currently illegal is that the argument for why they should be used in a, in a day-to-day setting, why we need that kind of weapons, and the, and the, the risk-reward associated with them, I just don't see it. And even if, look, if you want to have guns, that's fine. I mean, it's, it's part of the culture that we have in our, in our country. But when you start doing, like, at the risk-reward assessment as it relates to some of these weapons that are, that are currently out there, it's just hard to justify in my mind. Uh, and obviously, I, it's pretty clear which, which side of the aisle I stand on this one. As to why some of these need to continue being, you know, made available. You know, I, I I've actually yeah. shot an AK forty seven. That is a weapon for war. Like that there mm-hmm. there is no other scenario for it. As a matter of fact, it was a very common weapon in like during the drug wars, like back in the nineties. Maybe it still is now. For I don't know. sure. Uh, but yeah. that is a weapon that is not for hunting, let's be honest. Like that's not a thing that there's nothing recreational about that weapon. But see, this, this is the point. So I agree with you. I think it's lightweight. It has a high-capacity magazine. It has high-velocity ammunition. All of these kind of hallmarks of doing the most damage the fastest. I agree 100% with yeah. you. What I struggle with is the difference. But the reason I'm not a courage on this speech mm-hmm. is precisely because of the lack of definition of that point. Oh, okay. Like everything else, I think, is, is concrete. It's like you're saying, look, these are the things that I want. But why not just say, this is what we need? Right. Lightweight, high-capacity high, um, magazine, high-velocity ammunition, defined in this way. We're going to start with those three parameters. Those are the guns that we believe right. should be off and the street. And these... we fully know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we went further and said, we fully know this doesn't address the issue entirely, but it helps us at the margins and we yeah. want that. Like, if he would have said that, I'm like, I'm all in. Let's go. But dude, he took that point off of the negotiation immediately. So it's, it's already off. Well, exactly. Is, is You're even, negotiating with yourself. worse, Charlie. That's, that's my way. Okay, so he did a crappy job to find it. Well, he took it off the table immediately. He, he didn't even try it. Right. Like, it, it, I was it, like, dude, what are you doing? It, re- it reminds me. It reminds me of the people that say, you know, it's ten thousand dollars a month unless you you can't pay ten, in which case it's five. It's like, right. okay, I'll take the five. Like that's my point. Like that is the negotiation. It was terrible from that standpoint. It was terrible. So that's why yeah. I, I'm, I'm more yeah. cringe on this, even though I do think a number of the points that he's bringing up here, I do feel would actually make a difference. Would, uh, for sure at the margins, but I think we'll start to move the path in the right direction for what needs to be done. Um, I, I especially like the, the I mean, the, 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 the only exception here is I don't think that raising rates in 21 actually makes that big of a difference in what we're talking about here. And it's the kind of thing that, that maybe will give people a sign that we're doing something. But the reality is I think it doesn't address any of the issues that we're, that we're actually talking about here. It doesn't address the mental health issue. doesn't address the issue of someone showing signs that they have problems where they're showing violence and they're still able to buy guns and access them without a background check and all the different places we can get it, the types of guns they can get. Like there's all these other problems that are still there because people still at 21 also have issues. Like – Let's be honest, right? But at least, but at least it's 
but at least it's clear, Jesus. Yeah, right? that you can yeah, disagree it's, it's with a, it. Sure, sure. But it's, it's a clear. It's yeah. a concrete step, mm-hmm. right? Which, which is again, I'm yeah, not I, agreeing. I, agree I, I don't have to agree with any of it to, to give it a courage. Okay, the last point on this, and then we, we'll move on. Is um, the last time we spoke about the Uvalde issue, you made I thought was a really interesting point about we don't have a gun policy problem; we have a gun culture problem. And I thought a lot about that. And the 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 part that I um, now. I think agree with you even more strongly on is the culture part, but less gun culture. And here's why I actually went back and looked at the data to see what, how many, we have a lot of guns, but is the ratio of people to guns the same? Is it getting bigger? Is it getting lower? What's, what's happening, right? Because you hear all these stories from, you know, old timers who are like, we used to have gun safety classes in public school. Like, literally, they'd bring the weapons in. In my high school, we had guys with gun racks pulling up to the parking lot with the guns in the rack. Mm-hmm. And, like, we never had this, th- yeah. these school shootings. So I looked up, at, I looked up uh, this stat, and it's the percentage of households in the U.S. that own one or more guns going all the way back from 1972 to 2021 and doing it on a percentage basis. And here's the shocker that I found is that the percentage of households in the U.S. that have guns over the last 45 years has actually dropped. It's actually so gone it's, down. Yeah, it's just the quantity of guns per people that own them is the one that's going up, basically? Is that what it is? Well, I, I, I think the, pers- the, 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 the volume of guns has gone up, but so has the population. So right. what you end up with is the proportion is actually about the same, if not slightly lower. In 1972, it was 43% of households mm-hmm. that had a gun. In 2019, it was 37. So even though there's more guns, there's also more people. And so what, what ends up happening is you have less guns in the house. So what I think this leads, I'm not saying that we don't have a gun culture. We do. We definitely have a gun culture. But what I'm saying is um, the degree to which the, there's more guns than people starting point is the starting point. I don't think it is. I think what we have is a culture problem. And it's a culture that doesn't value life. I think it's a culture that looks at people disposably. I think it's a culture that doesn't know how to communicate. I think it's a culture obsessed with you know, devices and kind of like self, you know, uh, um, uh, self-affirmation, not affirmation, self-reflection. Uh, um, and, and I think all of that, plus, you know, the fact that, you know, we've had a, a significant amount of change to, you know, family dynamics and, and faith dynamics and everything over the course of the last 50 years. I think all of those things are part of this culture issue. And it's not just about we've got more guns, because we do, but we also have less of them in, that, in households because the country's grown. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of close with that because I had been thinking about from yeah. our last conversation. It, it, one thing I wanted to ask you, because I was and I was looking at this, I was having a conversation about yeah. this topic, um, I think last week, and um, you know, I've been, I've, I've looked up to see what has been kind of the response from the more religious circles as it relates to this this issue around um, mass shootings and gun deaths, and I've actually seen more come out now from various mm-hmm. bishops that are basically be more vocal about actually taking the stance that the church, especially in the context of the Catholic Church, you know, is consistency for the protection of call, for the call for protection of all life, and really calling for change mm-hmm. here. Yeah. And, and so that, which is good, I'm glad to see that. The, the part that I, that I still don't see, and like the, the sort of the extreme version of that, like when I think about what happened a few, I think it was a few weeks ago, it was a bishop, it was, I forget what it was out of San Francisco where he was, who basically called for not giving, um, uh, what's the communion, communion to Nancy, to Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi? Like those more extreme versions, like we're going to go all in to protect life, 
like that is if I feel like right now the stance that I've seen from more bishops is being more vocal about the position of the church, protecting life, and therefore calling for change. But what I haven't seen yet, and I don't know if you have a different perspective of the next stage of that, which is really what has or has happened in the pro-life debate, which is like now we're gonna proactively go after people that are in high-ranking positions that are taking a pro-choice stance. And maybe it's a few that are very vocal, and it could be definitely that. But it is, like, it's the kind of thing that, A, I don't agree with that strategy at all. I think pushing people out who are actually practicing the faith is a mistake, right? Um, but B, it is something that I don't understand why those same people haven't, are, using, are using the same kind of tactics of also saying, and by the way, we're also not going to offer communion to all these other folks who continue to negate changing some of these gun policies because their actions are also ending life. See what I'm saying? And, and it's, and it's, yeah, and, no, and it's a bad thing that. to, to uh, once again, I have to reiterate, I think pushing people out of the faith because you disagree with their approach or do you disagree with their, with their views is a mistake because all that says to me is that for those that want to be active uh, practi- like practitioners of their faith, and in this case we're talking about specifically the Catholic Church, it just makes it harder for them to then take on these political positions. I will put Biden in that category. I will put anyone that is basically wants to be Catholic and has positions that may disagree with the church. If they're getting called out that way, it just makes it harder for them to to really be in those elected positions or for people that are that religious to want to pursue elected positions, knowing that now this comes with the territory. Does that make sense? Yeah, you put a lot there. So I'll, I'll give you two quick thoughts. Number one is that um, I find it very... Maybe not easy, um, but I found I find it um, very comfortable for me to be 100% in agreement with what the church teaches on every social issue. And what that means is I'm against the death penalty and I'm against abortion. Mm-hmm. That I am for, I'm for the immigrant and I am for a, a nation's um, ability to defend itself. Um, that I am for the environment and yet, um, you know, preeminently value individual human life. I I have no discomfort holding all these positions, even though politically that puts me at odds with a number of different people, right? Right. Um, And I I understand that. You know, bishops are human, and some bishops don't want to be at odds with certain people, and they don't mind being at odds with others. And so there's a little bit of lack of consistency there, perhaps, in, in their approach to things. The image that I've always found helpful to imagine what a true like bishop is. The bishop is a shepherd in the true sense. And if you've ever seen a shepherd, you know, the traditional vision of the shepherd is they've got the shepherd's stick, you know, the crook. Mm-hmm. And the crook on the top part has that little circle piece. And that's the thing you're supposed to be able to bring the sheep back gently into the fold, right, before they go off a ledge. On the other side of that staff is a sharp stick <laughs> that you're supposed to use to keep the wolves away and also to poke the, the occasionally stubborn sheep back into the pen. Mm-hmm. So because, because somebody is a bishop doesn't mean that they should be just, you know, all kumbaya with everybody all day. In fact, if that's what you do, you're probably not being a very good bishop. But it does mean that you have to call balls and strikes all the time. And a lot of these guys do... Uh, you just may not hear about it because the subject like the Nancy Pelosi thing is so big that it breaks out into the mainstream. So you read about it in CNN, whereas maybe every other thing that they do, you only hear about it in Christian media or something. Mm -hmm. But your point is a fair one. And I think that there are bishops who have um, some inconsistency if they show them. By the way, it works in the other direction as well because there are 
you know, bishops who are very, um, you know, it's another, it's another both and for me, right? I, I support and want to love and treat with compassion everybody who's gay, LGBTQ, etc. But I also affirm the importance of natural, biological, gender, sex, and marriage. Like, I can do both of those things. Yeah. But there are bishops on the other side who will say, like, you know, talk all day long about LGBTQ. They're at the LGBTQ parades. They never talk about abortion. Right, so you can kind of find, depending on who you pick, either you know folks on on both sides, and I found very few, to your point, who do that both and really well. I think that's a very fair yeah, uh, complaint I'm, that you I'm have. I'm bringing up a, a slightly different point in the sense that, well, starting with uh, denying publicly denying the communion of of a elected official as a strategy for bringing people in, as the Pope portion, portion of what you're referring to, I, I just, I don't understand the logic of pushing people out that want to be religious because they disagree with one aspect of the religion, even if it's public. It kind of goes back to just leadership and management is you praise publicly and then you, you know, you correct privately, right? And and the second you go into the, in that scenario, I, I do think it, it pushes like those person further away from, from, I mean, maybe in some cases you can say it changes their mind and therefore they want to come back. But I think that kind of public, like kind of latching or, or condemning, I just don't know how well that actually works in bringing people, those people, if the goal is to bring those people back in the faith, I don't see how that actually achieves that goal. Now, if part of it to your point is there's certain things that you're not mentioning because you want to talk about those things privately with those people and continue to work with them. And look, even between you and I, Charlie, we always joke around that I'm like your pet project, right? And it's, it may take years, but like you haven't given up on me, right? But if every time, but, but if very publicly you were constantly like, like pushing me out further away from the faith, I just think that's not going to get me to want to come back. It's not going to get me to want to get closer. And that's the part that I don't, I don't follow that. And I, and I think, there is obviously an inconsistency of not using that same approach with this subject, but the, that overall strategy, I just think, is very flawed. Yeah, no, I understand that. I, I, the only two things I would say to that is that, um, you know, church leadership or spiritual leadership is definitely not supposed to be strategic or leadership um, uh, only focused, right? So the way that we might look at uh, secular or business issues has some bearing on the way that you're pastoral with your flock, but not. it doesn't exactly go one-to-one. The other thing is that um, but, but maybe in defense there, is, of uh, in, the archbishop. Charlie, mm-hmm. isn't in that training, though, isn't there, I have to imagine there has to be a lot of, uh, like, psychology training of, like, what of makes course. people pick. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And I'm just saying, just trying to... Yeah, you're, look, your goal... Forget business leadership. Like, let's put that to the side. Just psychology with humans. Of course. But like public lashings like that, I just don't, I don't know how effective those actually are in getting people closer. Yeah, no, I can. Like bridging the gap. Is and I can, I, I can definitely understand that. Um, but I would say a few things, and, and this subject we can go very deep on, mm-hmm. but there's lots of, you know, centuries and centuries of, uh, of, of study and, uh, and teaching on this point. I would just say two things. Number one is um, Archbishop Cordelioni, which is the, the bishop that you're talking about, in San Francisco, who um, banned in his diocese the reception of communion by Nancy Pelosi. If you, you know, people should read his letter because in it he claims that he tried to connect with Nancy Pelosi six different times privately. 
to have a conversation with her, and she never responded to him mm-hmm. or had her office not respond to him. So the attempt, to your point, aren't they trained on... Yes, of course. So, like, deal with something with a person one-on-one before you make it public. In fact, that's actually, like, in the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. And it's in the Gospel of Matthew. If somebody sins against you, you go to them personally. If they don't listen to you, you bring a witness. If they don't listen to them, you take it to the church. That's literally in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a teaching, but in this particular case, she didn't respond. Right. And then the second thing is about your point about does this work? My guess is it's, it, it depends, but the church's position on actions like this is principally that they are medicinal because, and medicine doesn't always taste good, right? Because precisely the goal, to your point, is to bring that person back into communion, that's where we get that word from, into communion with the church more broadly. So, like, that is the goal. Now, whether or not it'll work in this case, I don't know. Who knows? But that is the objective. And in fact, that is like, that is the canon law, right? That says at the very end of the canon law book, it says at the end, all of these rules, all of these canons are in support of actually saving souls. That's what this is about. So, yeah. yeah, And if, so I don't know if it, if it works, but that is the objective is for it to be medicinal. My, uh, um, outsider in view is that I do see this quite a bit in religious circles as sometimes amongst religious people, they're most critical of other religious people rather than non-religious people. And like, it feels to me like a major, major mistake. Like it's not about being, like I actually had this conversation with a friend uh, last week where we were talking about religion and actually this is what I was actually talking about. And I said something, something about Catholics and then she's like, yeah, but they're not Christian. And I'm looking like, what? They're not Christian? Like what are you talking about? They're all Christian. It was like, yeah, no, but they're, they're different. No, I, I get that they're different, but we're, we're talking about, it's all beer. Whether it's IPA, whether it's lager, whether, whatever you want to talk about is fine. But to me, it's like, that's such a crazy statement to you who are not Catholic but are Christian to look at people that are Catholic as something other. Like, that is like, there is this thing that, like, and, it, and I've seen it the other way around, by the way, but that's such a pretty common thing that I see. And, it is, and, the, yeah. and in this case, it, the part that I find, disappointing is that when you have people that are actually trying to be active and I'm giving full benefit of the doubt, maybe it's the kind of thing where it's like Catholic and name only kind of scenario. Right. But even that, even if you're self-described as Catholic to do more, to make the the people feel further away from, or to to basically sound further outside of the church, I just don't know how that actually works and getting them actually closer to the faith. There's a lot of spiritual principles that you've just talked about there, though, because one of them is, it's kind of where we get the word discipline from, right? The word discipline comes from disciple, and it's kind of like any parent knows this, right? If you just gave your kids cookies all day and, like, let them do whatever they wanted and had no rules, like, you're not going to have a good outcome. So there's the fact that you correct someone, you know, Jesus did it all the time. The fact that you correct someone is not in and of itself bad. And generally, the bar gets higher the more you know. Mm -hmm. So if you're somebody who says, I'm a devout Catholic, I take my faith seriously, and yet you go out and contravene what the church teaches, well, you kind of deserve the scrutiny that you get to a degree higher than somebody who goes, I don't know, I go to church sometimes, I don't really know what the church teaches. Well, sure, from a pastoral standpoint, from a one-on-one standpoint, you're going to deal with those people differently in the same way you would deal with a kid who's like, you know, does whatever, you know, the, the, the equivalent would be, right? Um, uh, or, you know, maybe somebody who you have sleep over your house and doesn't know the way that you run your household, 
well, they're not going to be treated in the same way as your own kid who, like, knows we go to bed by 10, knows we don't eat off the floor, knows we don't feed the dog from the table. Like, you know these things. So you're going you're gonna to respond that, to, that, to that child perhaps in a different way. Yeah, I, and there's something I similar yeah, about there. Yeah, what I'm equating it is that correcting your child by kicking him out of the house. Like, yeah, you change the behavior. They're not going to spill that whatever on the carpet anymore. By the way, they're also not living with you anymore. Like, that, there's, just remember that part. And that's the part that I don't, yeah. I don't follow. Yeah, no, and it is an extraordinary circumstance. But there are even those extraordinary circumstances where, you know, your kid should probably not live in your house. Um, I mean, they're very rare. Thank goodness for that. But like, you know, I just met somebody recently in ministry whose whose son is on meth and yeah. is like, you know, creating all kinds of havoc and threatening the other children. And it's like, yeah, and they're of age. Like, look, this isn't ideal, but they probably shouldn't be home, right? So, but those are me, exceedingly rare. Let me push you on that, Charlie. So, from your perspective, I know we've come on a completely different direction now, but I think it's super interesting. Your perspective, having someone with a public stance that is pro-choice, do you mm-hmm. think that's enough of a, of a um, like a, of a counterpoint to the Catholic Church teaching that really means that they shouldn't be part of the church? Because by by I almost and maybe I'm I'm making the leap here that by the, by public denying confession, you're basically saying you are no longer worthy of being part of this of this full embodiment of the church, which includes receiving the body of God. Right, like, the, the, is that the the one law that can't be broken, and once broken, they should be kind of banned out, and then let them kind of be in the wilderness and then come back eventually? You, you, is it, is another way to ask your question? Is this is this like the hill to die on from a Catholic yeah, perspective? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the better way to to, uh, to ask the question. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I would say it is and it isn't. It is in the sense that um, the teaching of about the Eucharist, about communion, is the most important thing in all of Christendom. It's, it's the most important thing in all of Christianity because what we say about the Eucharist, it is the fountain, it is the source and the summit of the entire faith. It's basically the whole ball of wax. It's Space Mountain, okay? Mm-hmm. It's like once you go to Space Mountain, the rest of the park is closed. So it is like, it is the pinnacle right? Because it is Jesus himself, literally, mm-hmm. the real presence of God. So it is that, right? Um, like, what could be more important than God? I don't know. I, I, I don't think anything can be. So it is that. But to your question, is somebody not recognizing that the reason to take this action? The answer is no, because 70% of Catholics right now either don't have an understanding of what the teaching on, on the Eucharist is, or they, or they know it and don't believe it. Right. So if that was the, the status or the standard, then everybody would be, would be out. So I think, um, you know, canon law has this really pesky way of looking at things on a very individual basis. I think you have to look at the case here, which is a very high-ranking politician who claims a, devo- a devotion to the Catholic faith and communicates it thusly to every one of her constituencies, who in in the in the views of many is causing tremendous amount of confusions about uh, confusion about what that means mm-hmm. right so i think in that very limited circumstance the archbishop can and has made the case that that person should be excluded from communion so i don't know if that answers your question but it's a little bit of a yes yes no mm-hmm. okay cool do we have time for another one yeah well, wanna, All right, let's, let's talk about the Tesla one. I, I was very interested in talking about that one. 
Oh, you want to talk about Tesla? Sure. Yeah. yeah okay. No problem. So, um, so well, there's been a lot of Elon Musk news. As everybody knows, we've talked plenty about it, but the latest thing actually went down last week, um, and it really came from uh, an email or a couple of emails that Elon Musk sent last week to all Tesla employees, and what people may not know, I certainly didn't, is that Tesla has more than 100,000 employees. I mean, that's a ton of people. 100,000? That's Um, crazy. More than... More than 100,000 employees at Tesla. And so he sends out this email, presumably to like all at Tesla, mm-hmm. um, basically saying that if you don't come into the office and work a minimum of 40 hours a week in the office in person, that they will basically treat that as your resignation. I mean, it wasn't the exact words, but right. it was very clear that like you had to be in the office or you didn't work at Tesla. Right. Um, and that, you know, there was a couple of exceptions I guess, like very mitigating ones if somebody has a terminal illness. or I don't know. There's always, a, right, you know, right. in a population of 100,000 people, you're going to have some exceptions. But for the most part, it was like, this is the minimum. And 40 hours, and it was in, in parentheses, like in bolded all caps, is the minimum 40 hours, right? right. So like, that's like, th- that's zero. That's like, you know, that's like getting a, a, a D, okay? Like you get a D for being there 40 hours a week. <laughs> but it was the minimum requirement. The minimum. <laughs> and so, yeah, so uh, you might have the, the tweet in, or the email text in front of you. I actually don't, but um, it was something like that. So yeah, anyway, lots of, uh, uh, of outrage on a number of different sides. You know, a lot of employees who probably don't feel very comfortable being at Tesla anymore, especially those who want to work a hybrid kind of schedule. But Elon Musk claim is like, yeah, this stuff just makes people lazy. That's literally what he said. Like, it's, it's just this is not it how was, you work. It was interesting. Um, about it, there's a couple of add- add-ons to that. Is he, as part of that email, he he also stressed that the more senior, the more important this was for them to be in person, right? So that's actually a key point of what he's saying here, right? And then the other thing too is like he doubled down on it. Well, there was someone that tweeted at him and said, "Hey, Elon, a lot of people are talking about this leak email. Any additional comment to people who think coming into work is an antiquated concept?" Which he responded, "They should pretend to work somewhere else." <laughs> Uh, what what I mean so so you're in the process of yeah. you're in the process of starting a new a new company you're hiring new people yep. etc I mean how do you feel about this Oh yeah so so yeah and I've been, I've been thinking about and talking about this one a lot I mean frankly you and I've had some conversations with with other um, executives and CEOs about kind of work from home policy and you still kind of see a, a big kind of like you know range in terms of what the approach people are taking. Um, but in general, so I'll, I'll start. Let me start with the, with the topic of, of what he said, and I'll, I'll tell you kind of the approach that I'm taking. So, in terms of what Elon said, per, per usual, the way it wasn't very, um, it, it didn't feel very nuanced and, and, and elegant, right? The way that Elon said it. But at the same time, I don't disagree with the sentiment at all. I don't disagree with what he's saying. And the reason for that is that I like the idea of why he said that this is important. He's like, if we have people that are in manufacturing, that are on the plant, that are showing up every single day, so leadership being in there in person, like, matters. They should see, like, they, those, the plant workers should see that their leaders are also showing up. And there is definitely an aspect here of classism that has happened in a lot of different companies. This happened a lot during COVID, right? Amazon's a great example of this. Amazon had a lot of their headquartered people all working from home, all good, and all the factory workers, like, 
having to go in. There was all these breakout of COVID. People were super scared about it. And there was a lot of complaints that were going on there in the time about this classism that was happening. And Elon is saying the opposite. I'm like, hey, we, we are a manufacturing company. We design and manufacture cars. We have to, like, that's a work that cannot be done remotely, right? And if we're going to have a uh, big, and I'm, and I'm adding to what he said, right? But if I'm taking the sentiment of, of why I think he thinks it's important, I don't disagree with that comment at all. Now, the whole thing is, like, minimum of 40 hours, and, and if not, you should be working somewhere else. There's also, of course, like, some very toxic world culture, work culture comments that are, that are sort of, you know, that are read between the lines that are in there, which is not great. But I, I don't disagree with the sentiment. This is, in, in, in going back to the whole uh, work from home or remote uh, uh, work policies, look, the approach that I'm taking, because you were asking about what I'm, what I'm doing, is I think the, the model is uh, at minimum hybrid, and I do see the trend moving more and more towards in office. That's something that I, and I've talked to some people, a number of people about it, and look, I, I've heard it from all, all different ways. I heard people telling me, Here's the thing that I, that I was that I heard from a lot of people when I was starting this company and starting to hire is like, it's really hard to hire people because you need to offer them an arm and a leg for them to want to work for you. It has to be 100% remote because if you don't do that, they're not going to work. They want to work for you or, or quit. And what I found is that neither of those two statements have been true so far. Now, it, it may become true, right? And there's cases for individuals that are in that situation, but. I do think that this idea that of having people come into office, I think the concept of, especially when you are in a kind of company that is not manufacturing, that isn't requires some part of, some large part of your workforce to literally be in office every single day, I could totally see the argument how a lot of this can be done remote or at least hybrid where it doesn't require people coming into the office every single day because when you're in a city, and LA is a perfect example of that, trying to hire people in the city of LA is, is like, when people say, I live in L.A., they can mean a lot of different things. These could be two hours apart from each other, right, depending on where they are. So it is problematic to have people all come to office every single day. But I'm also a really big fan of building culture. Uh, and I think building culture is really, really hard to do remotely. Uh, I don't know of any examples of companies that have done a good job of building culture when it's 100% remote or, or retaining people, right? It's just that you're a little bit more disconnected. We, we did, for the new company I had last week, my first day in where I brought in the whole team together, um, all the people that, that ju we just onboarded, and everyone is under the assumption, or not the assumption, is, is the policy that we put in place that we're doing one day a week to start off with, kind of see how it goes. And it wasn't just having them all together for a meeting, but it was the lunch afterwards that we did, where people were just talking to each other. Charlie, there's no scenario where that would happen with doing the remote. No one's going to want to hang out to just talk Remotely. about the random stuff. Like, it, it well, not only, not only that, but, but remote work and virtual work by its nature is intentional, meaning you have to schedule it. It has sure. to be an open line. Everything you have to a, have an agenda. I mean, like, like that's just short, what it is. Even like the things that are supposed to be more like for team building, as long as it's in a, as, a, as, a, as a meeting, it's still a meeting. And I can tell you from that one day of having people like just interacting with each other, you can see immediately who were the people that were kind of immediately drawn to each other, kind of interacting. Two of the folks that are going to be doing more editorial were already talking about ideas and thinking of the things they want to write about. This wasn't unprompted. We were just having, we were having, literally having barbecue, right? And, and when I saw that, it just, it was, a, it was a big reminder to myself, like, this is why, like, building culture is so important to have people in person. I think remote can happen, can work when you have teams, individuals that have worked together for a long time and know each other already really well. 
I like the, the, the more work-life balance to give people the option to be able to do more, to be able to give people the option that don't have access to daycare or that it's just expensive for them to have people like take care, especially people with, with, with young kids. I could appreciate all of that. But scheduling some in-person time, I think, is really, really critical. Um, and I think the overall trend, look, we're going through a, a what definitely feels like a downturn in our economy. What you're seeing in the, in the, in the dot-com, or not dot-com, but in, in the tech space, is a number of places that are either freezing roles or letting go of people. A number of people are downsizing. I feel the job market in the technology sector and startup world is going to get tighter. And as a result of that, all of a sudden, employers now going to have a lot more leverage than they had a year ago. It's a buyer's market coming. It, yeah, it there's is a buyer's coming. By the way, the, the dynamic you just... You've seen it already, Charlie. Well, the like, dynamic uh-huh. you just described impacts to, uh, impacts Tesla, too. For, Tesla, for in sure fact, just announced that they've got like a hiring freeze and 10% reduction. And all of that has a downstream implication. All of that, right? Amazon has been going on a, on a hiring rampage for the last like two years, right? They're also going to be having a little bit of a downturn as well, right? It's like they overhired. And a lot of these same companies are having the same kind of issue. The markets are getting tighter. The capital raise markets are going to get tighter. The job market get tighter. And what that means is, is frankly, is more leverage for employers. And I do think that this trend of everyone being remote, everyone have flexibility, literally living in, you know, outside of the country and still working for, for this company. And as an employer having literally no say, you can't do it because you're so afraid of people leaving. I feel like that that is going to be changing. Um, right now, for the record, the tip statistically there are two open rules for every person looking for a job, right? So um, just by the numbers, that would say it's the seller's market, i.e. it's the employee's market, right? There's, there's, there's less of them to go around. But I think when you start de-averaging and looking at what those roles are, you're going to find some big differences. And also we're headed towards this downturn, um, which I think is going to impact it uh, quite a bit. So it sounds like your courage then on the new work from home, no more policy. Uh, I, I encourage for for Tesla. I, I think the reasons why he's doing why he's doing it to me seem like the right reasons. Um, once again, when you're in a company that manufactures, um, that designs, manufactures a product that requires a big part of your workforce to be there in person. Demanding that your executives are also there in person to be there with the rest of the team, I think is really important. Frankly. Um, I feel like it, during the pandemic, you saw the worst of it. A lot of people being able to have the flexibility with the people that were pay, getting paid the most, that had the most benefit, having the most flexibility, while the hourly workers that have the least uh, economic options were the ones that were having to be there all in person. I think that's a mistake. And I, and I get yeah. the, the, you know, the orientation that people have, especially in this new world that like the idea of working from home. I, I get that. But um, I think in that kind of scenario, it makes a lot of sense. And I think the new reality is going to be some version of hybrid, at least. But I think the trend in general is more towards office than away from office. I would agree with that, too. And I'm also a courage on this. By the way, the thing about the cultural impact, which I, I guess I agree with you in an academic sense, but I got to imagine, I have to imagine, that a lot of that cultural stuff is baked into the cake at Tesla. You have to know who you're going to go work for. Elon Musk is probably the most visible CEO on planet Earth, maybe ever on planet Earth. And you're talking about a guy who literally slept, lived in the factory, yeah. lived in it, oh, like he, slept there. Yeah, yeah, so you, you can knock him for a lot so, of things. But so how do you not yeah, know that? Yeah. You, well, that's the thing, man. People just get used to it very quickly. Like, the new normal becomes new normal very quickly, right? Um, and I think this is a, because of the pandemic, et cetera. This is now coming in and kind of having to reset the, the bar of, of what the culture is. Look. 
for myself and, and, and what I'm doing on, on, on my, my other company is that that is the starting point. The start of every person that we're talking to is like, hey, we're hybrid day one. We don't have an office. We're still hybrid day one. Like that just so we, everyone's on the same page. And I do feel that in that scenario, then you do weed out the folks. There's going to be some folks that are just not interested in that, and that's okay. Like that, that's just not the right thing, culture for them. I think you might even want to consider saying hybrid from day one, tilting toward in person full time. You know what I mean? Like that yeah, way they know exactly yeah, you're, what's you're coming. Right. I mean, potentially. that would be the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. That may be the even well, more saying that. A number of things we didn't get to. One of them, which relates to this, is there is a right now a four-day work a week experiment that's taking place. Apparently, the largest ever conducted in the United Kingdom. It's like got like seven thousand people that are going to be doing basically four days a week. A little bit different than a hybrid workway. It's yeah. basically work in person, but then you have a three-day weekend. So there's all kinds of variations, and I think that that's um, that's good. Um, so but anyway, related Europe, to right? what we're Surely talking about, already do that. I thought, isn't there other countries in Europe that, that already do that? Do a four-day week? There may be. I, I don't know about them. Um, so, so I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, different cultures exist, yeah. but um, but, but like, this is particularly one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Go, go ahead, finish. I was, no, I was just going to say this is one that is spearheaded by a nonprofit dedicated to creating awareness around the reasons why everyone should have a four-day week. Right? It's called Four Day Week Global. And they're running a uh, experiment with 70 companies, 3,300 different employees, companies across all different kinds of sectors. And then they're going to measure um, the stress, burnout, job effectiveness, life satisfaction, health, sleep, energy, travel, like all these different vectors to see what that actually does. Who's the economist that's running this ex- experiment? Because I, I love it. It, it sounds like an episode of economics. <laughs> exactly. That's what it sounds like to me. I'm sure it will be. No, I... Yeah, I don't, I don't know who the, the person is. There are some sociologists and some people who are weighing in on it, yeah. but um, the organization itself, again, is called Four Day Week, Four Day Week Global. I, I love that which idea. Which is the name of the company that's running Look, it. Look, I think we, uh, I, uh, even what happened with COVID and the whole idea about remote and hybrid, I think it did open up the possibilities for what work culture in the future can look like. Uh, in other ways for us to be able to operate. And I, I'm, I'm frankly very open to that. I love that, that kind of idea. The part, my pushback is just, is just saying or, or pretending that the in-person has no value is where I disagree with, right? And, and I think that there is definitely a lot of value to be had. Frankly, you and I have done a lot of in-person stuff, going and meeting with clients, and that stuff is just hard to repl- replace. Now, can we do, do I think that the, in the future we're still going to do way more video calls than we ever had before? Of course, and that's good, and we should do that because not everything should require a trip in person. But anyway, that's more where I'm coming from. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that as well. All right, well, I, we got to uh, go because we're over. Can, yeah, can go I ahead. Do a, real, a real quick honorable mention and one that we didn't we didn't get to. Yeah, for sure, of course. So, yeah, 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 do have, it. You, have you watched the new uh, Obi Wan Kenobi uh, series? Of course, I've seen all the, I've seen all the episodes. Well, oh, you want to talk about Moses Ingram? Yeah, what, what is just real quick? What is your, what is your thought about the series? Um, I, I really like the series, and I think that you know television is the new domain of Star Wars, right? So in the beginning, I looked at all the TV stuff as like a cheap counterfeit of the Star Wars experience, but increasingly, um, they've been up in their game. So the Mandalorian series is really good, um, and this episode or this series has started off very good as well. And like, 
you know, the initial stuff with Star Wars was always like the side characters, the ones you never heard of. It was cartoons. It yeah, wasn't live action. Now it's like you've got like Darth Vader in it. You know yeah, what I mean? Like yeah, it's the yeah, real yeah, deal. Yeah. So, so I'm very happy with it. My take on this is I think Moses Ingram has suffered a lot of really bad bullying mm-hmm. online and some straight up racist stuff. But I also have some trouble with this particular story um, because I feel she is the weakest of the lineup in the cast. Yeah. I think she is the poorest perform. I don't know what you call it. Just like, you know, she's the least impressive of the cast. Yeah. That's honestly my opinion. It, it's, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what was why I was, why I wanted to bring, bring it up. So I think the, first of all, Obi-Wan Kenobi series in my mind is, is by far the best series that they've done so far of the Star Wars series by, by far. The Mandalorian, as you know, I wasn't really a fan of it. And I've, I've forced myself to watch it. I'm not even done with it. And I forced myself. I watched the first full season. I'm in the second one now. And just have a hard time like, getting through those episodes. They're just so slow in my mind, you know. Um, but this, this uh, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi series is very good. I think it's, uh, it's one of the best, best written ones, the best stories so far. I love, the, to your point, Darth Vader in there. And I'm the same same thing, thing with you. When I saw the the this character of, that Moses Ingram uh, is uh, is playing, um, I just thought it wasn't very good. Like the the, the out of the out of the entire lineup, you know, you have Ian McGregor as Obi Wan Kenobi, and just like he brings such like depth to the character, and hers was just it it, it felt. Yeah, it was it wasn't good. Now the the part that I he she obviously I'm not justifying the clear racism that she's received and bullying. And when I see that to me like, dude, you guys can't be just a little bit more creative. Like you have to go the racist route. Like, yeah, it's a bad character for sure. And as a Star Wars fan, you should complain of bad characters. But you, is that really like do you have to go to the lowest common denominator right away? There's no other creativity of how we think about characters and how we you see what i'm saying like that is to be the part that is very disappointing and, and i feel bad for her personally for getting all that all that bullying and we've seen that in the star wars universe before where some of these um diverse characters and actors have gone bullied before there was it was the other asian asian woman that also got bullied quite a bit it's very disappointing to see at the same time it, it just isn't a good character it is by far the weakest of that of that series and it's, it's a lot less believable than than, than anybody else yeah, the 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 and just for people who haven't seen it, there she plays the role of a character called an inquisitor, which is basically these ex Jedi's that have now gone bad, that are hunting any remaining Jedi in the galaxy, and there's a Grand Inquisitor, which is the role that Moses Ingram wants, so she's like scheming against the main Grand Inquisitor. Um, so anyway, that's her role in it. Mm-hmm. I actually, I don't know if when you say it was the weakest character, if you mean the same thing that I'm saying though, because what, what I'm saying is I like the character, the inquisitor. I like her, the, the, the fact that that character exists, but when I compare her even to the other inquisitors, especially the, the one played by, um, a guy named Rupert Friend who plays the grand inquisitor. I just feel she's the least believable of all of them. Yeah, like she I agree just with that. does not come across as one. She's not believable in the, in, in the role. Yeah. And I don't know if it's the writing, the acting, I don't know the combination, but she just yeah, she doesn't have the kind of presence to pull off that role. And it's uh, exactly and it's that's, very that's what obvious. Uh, so I once again I feel like as a as a Star Wars fan, people should like voice that. That's fine. 
right? But at the same time, I, I is just disappointed to see that it always goes to the lowest common denominator. Yeah, so I, I, I would, um, I mean, based on the stories that I read, I guess I'm a, I'm a cringe on her facing backlash because a lot of what I read was either people complaining about diversity higher or worse, but I, you know, if the story was more about you didn't pull off this character and it's bad, like you're not doing a good job, then I would have been courage on this. Yeah. But that's not the that's not the story. But anyway, I think it's honorable mention. The casting, all of it is just not. Yeah, for that character, is not it's not great. Cool. All right. Well, we'll get to the rest of the items or the ones that survive uh, the week's travel um, on the next show. There's a couple really cool uh, honorable mentions, but we'll cut the show off now. So we'll give you guys uh, an hour and change to to listen this time. Where will we be next week? I think we're going to do another remote show. Uh, I will be in LA. You're now the Mr. Traveler. So uh, so see. I, I will be in Indianapolis. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, but we're gonna have to get we're we're gonna we're gonna have to get you a, a sock over your microphone so we yeah, get a so little we, uh, yeah, a little should, little, little better. That, yeah. uh, <laughs> no, so that's like an old hack. Uh, and where you don't get the peas in the yeah. Should, anyway, all right, my friend. Any last words? No, that's it. All right, very good. So we'll see you again next time, friends, on another episode of TDR. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown.